Classical music is vibrant, alive, and ever-changing. It's then and it's now. It's filled with the creativity and spirit of artists from all backgrounds and experiences. And it's as much in Carol Okoye's Uba's Dance as it is Beethoven's Fifth. Noteworthy Stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future, and they're hosted by me, Loki Karuna. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artists and catch up on past episodes at NoteworthyClassical.org. Everyone, I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining me once again for uh, another week of the show. To returning listeners, thank you so much. I really love having the opportunity to share with y'all each week. Your support is so appreciated. Couldn't continue to do this show without you. For new listeners, Triloquy is a show that takes the idea of classical music and expands it to include more aesthetics, more stories, more dialogues all in the name of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the show, to check out past opuses, and to contribute, visit the website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. Really excited this week to feature my recent conversation with Brandon Patrick George, who just came out with a new album called Twofold. We'll talk about that more in a bit. In the triloquy um, this week, I'm going to share a couple (laughs) of things, just, you know, offer my thoughts on uh, some things that have been going on. But for right now, um, I want to turn your attention to uh, an issue (laughs) that uh, I've been so, uh, you know, ingrained in and thinking about for so long, but it it came back to the front and I just want to share. Shout out to my good friend, Caesar. Really enjoy getting to, um, you know, spend more time with him and to uh, dialogue more. And he came over here last week really screaming (laughs) about um, prices for opera tickets uh, at the Met. And, you know, just to to look at what's going on in the field live, I thought I would bring that to the front today. Um, so uh, I'm going to look at the Metropolitan Opera's tickets for, you know, folks who don't know, that's, you know, the opera house. I, I'm, I'm sure they consider themselves leaders uh, in the field. And uh, I actually went there, what, two seasons ago to see Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which was, you know, the first time in over 100 years in the organization's history that they platformed to work by a black composer. That's another conversation. But uh, coming up this season in November, I've been talking about how excited I am to go there and see uh, Anthony Davis's opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Shout out to Anthony Davis. He was on Triloquy maybe a a season or two ago. Uh, You'll have to uh, go back and find that. Anyway, uh, his opera uh, about Malcolm X is uh, hitting the Met in November. So uh, I've been talking about it and thinking about it and getting ready to to go, but I guess I assumed that this was something <laughs> that would fit my wallet. Um, so we're going to uh, look at tickets here and uh, see what we're talking about. So I'm going to start with opening night, and it looks like it's already selling pretty well. There aren't a whole bunch of uh, center section or orchestra level seats left, um, but I'm seeing them, you know, closest, closest I can get uh, a little over $300, $330 uh, toward that back row in the um, uh, on the first floor. Uh, we have some $140 uh, dollar tickets, and you know that that's no not so bad. I suppose, or is it? Let's, let's go up a couple levels. So we don't want to sit on the same row as the orchestra. We want to sit up a little bit and be able to see. I'm seeing tickets here, um, $355 for you know some decent balcony seats, $275. I'm going to go all the way to the top to the nosebleeds. You know, uh, Caesar says this is what, nine city blocks away. You, you actually need those uh, binoculars if you want to see something back row. So it looks like the absolute cheap seats uh, are at $57. So basically we're talking about $350 
to about $57 for opera tickets. I don't know what your wallets are. I don't know what your situations are. I, I can, you know, imagine, you know, a $300 ticket being something that isn't that big of a deal to some people. Uh, for other people, it could be something that, you know, they're really going to prioritize so they have to save up for a month or two. Um, and then there are folks for whom that's impossible, you know, so th there's there's no way for me to really make a judgment about uh, the price of the tickets uh, for this show. But, you know, as someone who makes a decent amount of money, if I'm spending through $350 for me and let's say, you know, I want Dell to come with me. So, you know, that's $700 that I've forked out. We, we want to go ahead and make it a night since we have rode, uh, ridden the, uh, the train downtown. So let's go out to dinner. You know, that's another, you know, $150 or so, you know, if we have a drink or two and then we want to have a drink afterwards or maybe even have a drink during intermission at the Met. So we're talking talking about a thousand dollars for, you know, my partner and I at the end of the day to have uh, a night at the opera plus, you know, dinner and, and all the, uh, accoutrement. That's something that's not nothing. And, uh, I think we need to think about what it's going to take to, uh, reframe the way that, uh, organizations work to, you know, not make, uh, you know, regular people like you and me, or maybe let me just speak for myself, regular people like me pay prices like that. On top of the fact, I'm sure I've talked about this on Triloquy before. If you buy a ticket to a show at the Met, you get on a list where they're going to call you for donations on top of all the money you spend. Now, I'm sure there's some people out there for whom it's nothing, you know, a thousand dollars for a night out is what it is, you know, and on top of all of that, sure, they write a check for a few thousand dollars to the Met just to make sure that opera maintains. I'm grateful for those people, but <laughs> that is not me. And look, if we want to go a level deeper, we're talking about, you know, Malcolm X, we're really seeing black stories hit the stage for the, the first time in a generation. Yeah. Hire the black musicians and platform the marginalized composers, the folks who we should have known for so long, the women composers. What is it worth? If regular folks can't be there to cheer you on and celebrate your organization for the ways that you're broadening your scope. Now, I'm not saying that money is the uh, the only barrier here because I'll be the last one to say black people are broke. My example all the time is that Beyonce sold out all across the country and around the world as much as she was charging for those tickets. So that's not the only issue, but I think that's something that has to be considered and a, uh, uh, and a, a conversation that I want to make sure doesn't fall too far into the background. I could go on many other websites, you know, uh, I could look at New York Phil tickets that I'm sure are looking crazy, go across the uh, country and look at the LA Phil. But at the end of the day, this opera is something that I want to experience. It's something that I want to do. And now I gotta, I guess, I don't know, uh, keep my heat and AC off for <laughs> a month or, or, or until then so I can save the little shekels all for the privilege of sitting next to someone who's going to tell me how much they love my braids. They may even just go ahead and uh, put their hands in it without even <laughs> asking. Anyway, bless. Let's get to the interview this week. So I'm speaking with Brandon Patrick George. He's the flutist of Imani Winds. Um, he's actually a frequent player with the American Composers Orchestra. So it's really great for me to uh, see him and dialogue with him during those. And look, he's that dude, as as they say. I mean, just one of the leading uh, flutists out here. So incredible um, to have a, a black man out here leading the way. One of many, really. Shout out to Adam. Shout out to Damari McGill. But, you know, one of, you know, and, and let me say a few more names, Ebony Thompson, uh, Thomas, uh, Valerie Coleman It's you know, it's some black people out here that play the flute. Okay. Um, and I'm so, I'm so glad to uh, have been able to dialogue with one of them, Brandon Patrick George. He has a new album out. It's called twofold and, uh, it's a, a solo flute album. So it's music of, uh, um, women composers, marginalized composers, um, as well as some of the historic composers, but is unaccompanied. So, uh, a nice little, um, listen, I've, I've been checking it out my Myself and hope that you will too. Um, I'll actually share a little bit of twofold after our interview, but you know, I have to highlight my introduction to Brandon's playing. So, you know, y'all, y'all know me. Imani Wins is that group. I've just, I've been following them since I was in middle school, just uh, always been such a fan. Well, you know, there's been some uh, personnel changes over the years and um, 
I remember uh, watching a, a video, maybe it was a live stream uh, that featured uh, Imani Wins with uh, their new players uh, and their rendition of uh, uh, Mongo Santa Maria's uh, Afro Blue, the arrangement by Valerie Coleman. Anyway, at the beginning of this, you're hearing the horn right now, but um, you'll hear Brandon come in with just this flute flourish that is just so clean and so crisp. Oh, oh my gosh. Incredible player, uh, incredible person to dialogue with. Hope y'all enjoy my chat with Brandon Patrick George. school band program was having tryouts for the band and these tryouts just simply involved coming into the band room meeting one-on-one -on -one, uh, with the instructor and simply trying to make a sound on any instrument and in the case of the flute it was the head joint so uh, I was given a head joint and uh, the teacher said blow and um, I tried and I tried and I tried and I could not make a sound. And so he basically said, go home, kid, um, try again next year. So I was rejected from the band program because I couldn't make a sound within within five minutes. Wow. <laughs> so um, fast forward uh, to a year later. Um, I was completely obsessed with the flute and trying to figure out this whole way of making a sound that every day walking to school for a year, I tried to practice um, this concept of how to form an embouchure that this teacher was trying to show me in five minutes. And so when I showed up the following year in fifth grade, I put the flute together and I made a sound right away. Wow. Wow. You know, something that uh, a lot of folks don't know about me, people know me as a, a, a bassoon player, but I actually started bassoon and flute at the same time. I only studied bassoon because where I went to school and where I was growing up, the flute was a girl instrument. So the band director wouldn't let me play the flute. He handed me a bassoon. <laughs> it, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Is that still a narrative or is that a narrative you've ever had to deal with? That's so interesting because yes, when I was in elementary school, I was the only male playing the flute. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because as we know, historically speaking in orchestras, uh, it's been a lot of men playing the flute. Oh, so yeah. it's very strange that um, in schools, particularly grade school, that we get, uh, we start to label instruments being masculine or feminine. Um, but, you know, I didn't really, I didn't really mind it. And, you know, because I, I saw when I looked at TV and things like that, I saw uh, lots of men playing the flute. So when you looked uh, on TV, you saw these people playing the flute. Did your aspirations meet what you were seeing? Did you have plans instantly to join an orchestra? Did you want to be a music teacher? What was, what was the plan? You know, I didn't really have a plan. When I picked up the flute, um, I was, I guess, 10 years old. At this point, I didn't really have any hobbies except for like reading and, I don't know, watching TV, occasionally playing with my cousins on the weekends. But I wasn't into sports. I wasn't really into anything like that. Um, so I, I just did not have like an outlet. And so my mother was just happy that I actually had something to do that got me out the house, that got me around uh, other children um, and making music with them. Uh, but there was there was no plan um, 
and I played for two years in my public school band program before I auditioned for the performing arts high school in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio. And it was there at when I got accepted to the arts high school, I was given a private lesson every week with someone from the Philharmonic. I had orchestra two or three times a week in addition to all of my uh, academic classes. And I was playing chamber music and this was from uh, age 12 in a public arts magnet school. So it was there that I was getting all of this introduction to the classical music world. Um, and it was there where the spark sort of, I had this aha moment where um, I did a competition and um, it was the former principal flute of the Cincinnati Symphony who was adjudicating. Um, and he told my mother, you know, this kid, he has something. And if he sticks with it, maybe he, he'll be able to make a living doing it. Um, and my mother just did not have that kind of idea about music or classical music because I don't come from a musical family. Um, but when she heard that, she was like, oh, it sounds like he there's potential here. So she supported me. She got behind me. Uh, right away. And that's where I started to make a plan. And my teacher started to put together plans on how to get me from my hometown off to conservatory. Yeah, I always find it really fascinating when uh, musicians of your caliber describe being first generation musicians, at least first generation Western classical musicians. I wonder if you'll speak a little bit more to that. What did the conversations at home look like when you started auditioning to conservatories and taking auditions? Do, do, do they get what you're doing? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that they fully understood right away, but I have to say this about my family is that they really believe in teachers mm. and educators. And so they really, um, where I come from, they hold, you know, a high honor in, in our, in our culture and society. And so my mom took what my teachers were saying as this is what this kid has to do. And she was she was supporting it. She was driving me to my audition. She was driving me to competitions. And I think she didn't understand, but she knew that I loved it because I couldn't stop practicing. I practiced like crazy. <laughs> um, and so she knew I loved it. And between the love for it and the word of my teachers, she trusted uh, that by her just simply showing up, being a good mother, taking me where I needed to go, that that was going to help me get where I needed to go. So it's, it wasn't even about music per se, as much as it was about giving me the opportunity to have the best kind of life that I could have. And if it meant that music was going to be the vehicle for that, then she was going to support that. Wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, you have me thinking again about my early days as a musician. When I came home with my bassoon for the first time, I went to the internet to figure out, first of all, what it was, because the band director just handed it to me. And uh, I'll never forget, I ended up on the MySpace page of Imani Wins. So, of oh. course, um, you know, the, the group has changed a little bit, you know, since the, the late 90s. You're now the flutist of Imani Wins. Were they on your radar? As a youngster? Uh, you know, I discovered Imani Wins when I was in college, actually. So I, I was not aware of them uh, when I started out. And I think they were just, just getting cooking, I mm -hmm. think, when uh, I picked up the flute. Now, fast forward about 10 years, they... Um, were doing pretty well at that point. And they had come um, to, to Oberlin where I was a student to perform in the artist recital series. Um, and I heard them and I was just blown away by the artistry and just uh, the, the programming and just seeing people who look like myself uh, playing at such a high level. Um, but when I was in, uh, high school and junior high school, it was actually Damari McGill, who was a big inspiration to me because he came to Dayton, Ohio to play uh, Jean Corigliano's Pied Piper Fantasy with the Dayton Philharmonic mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. And it was, it's funny because it was just about the same time 
when I started to do competitions and my teachers started seeing like there was potential. And so I remember he came uh, to play with the orchestra and he was on the front page of the art section. And my grandmother in her last year of her life um, saved that newspaper article for me. I had never heard him play. Um, I had never been really to a classical music concert before, but the fact that I saw this young black man playing the flute and having a career as a soloist was so incredibly inspiring. Um, and I have to say that I, I really owe a lot uh, to him for sure. I mean, there are so you, so you reminded me, there's so many black flutists out there. We have you, we have Damare. There's my great friend, Adam Sadbury. We got Ebony Thomas down in Texas. Are, are y'all a little clique? Are y'all a community? What does what, what, what the what does the flute uh, group text look like? <laughs> you know, I, we all really it, it is like a little family. Um, and I think for me, it's so exciting seeing us out there doing such interesting things, doing varied things in many different uh worlds in the classical music world. Um, and I really think that people like Damari really did a lot to show us what was possible. And so when you fast forward 10, 20 years after his career really took off and uh, you know, the opportunity for him to really inspire a, the next generation, I think we are now uh, seeing that um, that fruit, that tree is, has bare fruit. And when you talk about the breadth of activities that are out there, I can't help but to think about you. I mean, you still do some orchestral playing, you're a soloist, you're a recording artist, you're now a member of Imani Wins. Do you have a, a, a favorite lane you like to play in? Or is the, the multifaceted career something that uh, you really do find uh, inspiring and, and, uh, and, and uh, invigorating? Yeah, that's a great question. I always like to joke and say that I'm an only child. So there's something in me that probably just really likes playing solo and <laughs> chamber music, honestly, uh, because even in uh, Imani, we are all five soloists. You know, we collaborate and we really come to a group sound and interpretation together. But the way we have to carry our individual lines, um, it's as a true soloist. Uh, so I really do love solo and chamber music playing. The orchestral stuff, um, you know, it's a funny story. When I got out of school and I had gone to grad school at Manhattan School of Music and I came to New York specifically because I wanted to do solo and chamber music work. Um, and I got out of school and I just really, I was doing some competitions here and there, but I just wasn't really sure how it was all going to work and how to piece it together. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved orchestra. I mean, I'm a sucker for a good Brahms symphony, a good melody, a good harmonies. Um, and I said, well, I don't really know how this whole solo thing is going to pan out in New York is tough. So I'm just going to take some auditions, see what happens. Um, so for quite a few years, I took a number of auditions and uh, many led to me spending weeks in different orchestras. And so for about, I would say, eight years prior to joining Imani Wins, outside of the handful of uh, solo projects maybe that I did in New York, I was really just kind of living out of my suitcase going all over the country, playing with different orchestras. Um, now Imani takes up so much time. It is a full-time job. We tour, we're on the road hundreds of days out of the year. Um, so it takes a lot of time. So I don't really have the flexibility. Sorry about that. <laughs> I don't have the flexibility um, to take on too many other projects outside of solo because those projects can be more flexible. Um, but I, yeah, I really, really love playing solo. I love that I get to bring my own personality um, and interpretation and character and passion and all that uh, to the music in a way that I don't think I can do um, in an orchestra. You're so busy, they're trying to email you now, see? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna like force with like now, like right now, cause I'm like, 
let's stop this and do not disturb. <laughs> so, so I do want to talk about your um, your solo uh, recordings before I get into uh, before we get into twofold. I wanted to ask about uh, your previous recording for back in 2020. I took a look at the uh, New York Times feature that surrounded it, and the headline was A Flutist Steps Into the Solo Spotlight. So as a bassoonist, I took issue because I'm like, well, damn, the flutist always has the spotlight. What are they talking about stepping into the spotlight? Do you, do you, do you see the flute as an instrument that could benefit from more spotlight? Do people have a, a perspective on the flute that is incomplete or, or uh, you know, what, 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 what do you think of the role is of the solo flute in our music world these days? That's a good question. Now, I have to say, I think, when we think of wind instruments, woodwind instruments, brass instruments, we just don't see them in solo performance nearly as much as we do um, string players, piano players, singers, right? Maybe mm -hmm. not quite in that order, um, maybe in that order, <laughs> but um, we don't see a lot of wind players. And though historically in the 20th century, we did see sort of the rise of solo flute performance, most notably with Jean-Pierre Rompal from France and uh, with Sir James Galway. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the 21st century, I, I think in terms of recitals and uh, solo performance, I think the emphasis became more on the flute in contemporary music because we have such amazing living composers and composers uh, from the 20th century that just wrote amazing, amazing music for the flute that we sort of started to see the rise of a lot of contemporary performance. But what I was after in that recording was a combination of the two, sort of like um, preserving uh, historical music and sort of approaching a modern performance with historical performance um, sensibilities, mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, playing contemporary music and music by living composers. And so I was after trying to blend those two things because I feel like I've always lived in both of those worlds. And I think it's hard for me to live without the other. Sure. So um, I've constantly tried to make a case for the flute, not only for the solo music that's being written today, but the great music that um, we have from centuries ago. That other wind players, and sorry to bassoonists out there, but <laughs> you, that, you know, the flute just has a lot more of that, particularly Bach. Um, so I've always wanted to bring that music and pair it with newer music. Yeah, Vivaldi took very good care of us in, in his day. So we, we have our historical music as well. <laughs> How many concertos did he write for the bassoon, actually? I think it's 36, if I'm remembering correctly. Wow. Yeah, one, wow. one for every key plus some. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Imani wins, uh, uh, our clarinetist Mark is sort of like my brother. And so he often pokes fun at, at both the clarinet and me as a flute player because he loves Bach and, you know, they just don't, they don't have any of that. The earliest thing really is Mozart. So we're always joking about that or he's teasing me a bit. So. <laughs> yeah. And when folks check out Twofold, uh, they'll see that like your first album, there's Bach on it. Now it is a different Bach, but I, I just wonder if you'll speak to, again, why uh, that era specifically is so important to you or maybe important for flute players to be familiar with? Yeah, I find the music, well, of J.S. Bach to be incredibly powerful, beautiful, complicated, difficult, timeless. You know, it always challenges me and I'm always uh, looking to grow and to understand it on a new level. But to be Quite honest, I'm more fascinated with the music of his son, C.P.E. Bach, because it tends to be a bit wild. Um, it's wild in uh, the characters. Um, he wrote in this era 
where composers were really fascinated, um, sort of like the Rococo. So they're very fascinated with drama, mm. right? Not only uh, elegance, but fire, really, just really fire and bringing a whole uh, array of emotions to, to music. So his music has always fascinated me. We have quite a number of flute concertos by C.P. Bach, um, but this piece, um, also in A minor, just like that of his father uh, for solo flute, um, is extremely dramatic. Lots of character train changes all the time. Um, crazy harmonic shifts. Like it just never goes completely where you think it's going to go. Um, and I like that. I like the drama. I mean, again, maybe it's like the only child in me, like a little bit <laughs> of a deal, if you will, but I, I like that um that drama i like the characters that he brings to to the music and it was a piece it is a piece that i've lived with for many many years um but it's an interesting story about how uh that piece came to be on this program uh that i put together on twofold because like everyone during 2020 and into 2021, I spent a lot of time playing unaccompanied music. So mm -hmm. a lot of time by myself. I don't think I saw my colleagues for almost, a, uh, from Imani Wins for almost a year um, out of precaution and waiting for vaccines and things like that. So I spent yeah. so much time. And so CP Bach was sort of like, uh, I don't know, comfort food. It was just this piece that I, that I came home to. And then I realized um, at some point in 2021, 22, that Saad Hadad, fantastic composer, had composed a work for solo flute that was um, directly inspired by the C.P. Bach hmm. uh, sonata. And I said, wow, this is really, really awesome. So uh, one of the first performances I gave uh, out of lockdown was that I got to pair the C.P. Bach with Saad's piece, um, which Saad intended for these uh, works to be performed back to back together so that the uh, listener can hear uh, the connection, right? And so I became super fascinated with uh, sort of like this two ways of hearing things and also the concept of pairings. So then I just went down a rabbit hole of other works and composers who really, really interest me and created a whole series of pairings. So this album, Twofold, every work is paired with another one. Some are, you know, 300, almost 300 years apart. Some are uh, just a few decades apart. Um, but yeah, so it was really this CP box sonata and Saad's composition inspired by it that um, inspired me to create this uh, recital program that I recorded twofold. So beyond those two composers, how did you come to select uh, the other works that are on twofold? So the other works on twofold um, are Toro Takamitsu, Claude Debussy, Rina Ismail, Sean Opepolo, uh, and Ruth Crawford Seeger. And Ruth, Crawford Seeger, I love her music and I came to know her work, uh, notably through her quintet that she wrote, a Sweet for Wind quintet that um, Imani has toured for many years. Um, it's one of my favorite uh, quintets that we play. And I just was always so fascinated by her story because she uh, is from Ohio, was from Ohio, just like I am. Um, and she was really on track to be this star composer, she received a Guggenheim Fellowship. She traveled to Europe. Um, she entered competitions, won competitions. Um, but then, uh, as with uh, many women composers over it, throughout history, um, her career took a back seat to family life and to the work that she did with her husband, Charles Seeger, who was known for documenting uh, folk music, American folk music, mm -hmm. and ha who happened to be the, um, the father of Pete Seeger. Right. Uh, 
Um, and so I was really, really fascinated with her. And so after uh, playing her quintet for the first time, I said, I have to find out, did she write anything for flute? And she did, she wrote this gem of a piece that I absolutely love. And she spent time in Chicago and lived there for many years. And so in her language, the style in which she writes um, is sort of what she called verse form. So it's very, uh, it's like poetry in a way, but it also is like speech and like a dialogue. And so very often the flute seems like it's playing the role of two people in conversation with each other. And so I was very fascinated, like, oh, this woman, she lived in Chicago. She was exploring uh, dialogue. And then Sean Opepolo, whose music I love, wrote, who's also based in Chicago, wrote a solo flute piece that's based on a painting of an older man who we believe is a grandfather, African-American grandfather, with his grandchild. Mm -hmm. and, the, and Sean imagined a conversation between uh, this grandfather and the grandchild and wrote a gorgeous eight, almost 10 minute long composition for solo flute. And I said, wow, Ruth Crawford Seeger and Sean Okapolo, that's my next pairing. And then I had Toro Takamitsu who um, though uh, was from Japan, was very, very influenced by Western classical music, most notably French music. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about Debussy and sort of impressionism that influenced Takamitsu. And so I said, I should pair the Takamitsu with the Debussy. But with Takamitsu, he was someone who was very interested in uh, blending sounds from the East with the West, using Western instruments in a way that sounded like music and instruments that he heard in his native country of Japan. And so I was very much so thinking about a dear friend of Imani Wins, Rena Ismail, who wrote us a gorgeous quintet that we play all the time. I've been in the group almost five years now, and I don't think there's a season that's gone by that we've not played this work because she just really knocked the ball out the park with it. But Rena's music blends both her American Western classical training with the Hindustani tradition, which is something that she came to a bit later um, in life, actually after she completed her formal training um, at uh, Juilliard and Yale. And I said, wow, she blends these two sound worlds of the East and West so beautifully. She incorporates the scales from Hindustani music, these rags that are so gorgeous. And this piece, Ziffindel, you might know, was first a bassoon piece. It was Indeed. actually first a bassoon piece. <laughs> and she, she gave it a whole new life, creating a version for flute. But um, I spoke to Rena about this, and she said that this work, Ziffindel, actually for her represents the very beginning of her journey into exploring Hindustani uh, music and that tradition in which she started to incorporate rags into her music. Um, so I was so happy um, that I got to bring a work of Rena's to, to this album and to be able to pair her, these two gorgeous composers and gorgeous works, uh, one by Rena Ismail and one with uh, Takamitsu. And you're really outlining one of the things I love so much about new music while I've dedicated uh, my life to making sure that it survives is that it's not just the music, it's personalities, it's, um, it's shared experiences and stories. You know, I, I had dinner with uh, Rena a few months back when she had a premiere with the South Dakota Symphony. Of course, Shauna Pebolo is a is a, a longtime friend, someone who I've been following for a long time. At the same time, it would seem, at least to me, that that creates a sort of challenge around new music. If you don't quite get the CPE Bach right, he's he's still dead, so it's it's not going to matter. If if something goes wrong with Sean's piece, somebody's going to text him. You know, does 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 <laughs> focusing so much on new music create those sorts of challenges from your perspective? I think it creates challenges and also opportunities, mm -hmm. honestly, because um, for me, what I love about new music is that the composer is here 
that we get to ask them questions. For me, with early music, I've spent so much time reading text and trying to understand and, and decipher manuscripts and understand exactly what composers were after because we don't have any recordings. So it's like really trying to use text to get into that world and understand. So everyone can have an opinion about this music because the composer isn't here and everyone does it differently. Um, but with living composers, what I love so, so much is the collaboration. So for each work on the album, Saad's piece, Rena's piece, Sean's piece. I play those pieces for all of them. Now, look, if someone has a problem with it later, <laughs> they have to take it up with the composers because right. <laughs> I have to say I play. There are things that I did differently I, um, that maybe are not in uh, the scores because the composers specifically told me that they wanted me to do it differently. Maybe they'll edit it and they'll change it based on what we talked about. Maybe they won't because they just thought what they wanted me to do suited me as a player. I don't know. But I love the collaborative nature of contemporary music and really being able to get in the head of the composer and ask questions, like ask them, mm -hmm. what are they going for? And to have real conversations. And sometimes composers write things that are really, really difficult and maybe they don't always work well. And composers are all, what I've found, they've, they're always really open to, to feedback and understanding your needs as a performer more, understanding your instrument uh, more. And so I feel like I like this collaboration and this trust that we build as performers with composers um, and vice versa, because I, you know, they need us, we need them. And I really love the collaborative nature. And I think that is why I'm so drawn to contemporary music. Not that anything is ever too difficult for you. I'm sure that's a conversation that's never, ever been had. <laughs> oh, there's some things. There's, we all have our weaknesses. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not ashamed to say that. But, you know, there, um, there, there are things that are challenging. And, but it's always, I think, a beautiful challenge to, to uh, pick up a new work and try to figure out what a composer is after and trying to bring their ideas to life. I think that's so, so beautiful. So are you already thinking about a third album or are you catching your breath for a minute? I did record a third album last okay. year um, that should be out sometime um, in 2024. Okay. Yes. So um, I recorded two albums last year, which was Pretty, pretty wild. But I have to say that this album, Tufo, is fully unaccompanied. So that just made everything easier because when you're dealing with piano or any other instruments, you know, the scheduling, the piano tuning, the instrument, the studio, you know, it's it, there's so many moving parts. So twofold um, for me was kind of a simpler experience than um, the first album and then the, the third album that I just recorded. You really are an only child because I was expecting you to say that the unaccompanied would be more difficult, but <laughs> you're saying it's easier. <laughs> put you in a room by yourself and you're good. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, you put me in a room by myself and I'm just happy as Lark can be. Like, I just really, I really, I really love it. I really, really do. And I love that this album gave me an opportunity just to uh, put out into the world uh, pieces that I've lived with for many years, but also some brand new works that are just absolutely stunning, bringing them all together. And also gave me an opportunity to reflect on 2020, 2021, and the music that I lived with on my own in isolation um, and put that out in the world. When I think about the different aspects of your career, performing in orchestras, uh, you know, the chamber music, the recording, I wonder if there were big takeaways specifically from uh, the, the recording part of your work. Is it the same as going to play a concert? Are there different approaches or, or ways to engage recording versus live performance? 
That's a great question. I think uh, for recorded performances, um, what's really important to me is to have a good set of ears on the other side of mm. the booth because you're not really sure what's going out there. I think live performance is interesting and in some, and in some ways easier because if you're playing in a great concert hall with a great acoustic, you can kind of hear the sound go out and hear the sound come back and more or less have a sense of what's going out there. Mm -hmm. Not always, but generally. When you're put into a studio um, that doesn't really have any acoustic, really, and um, everything kind of sounds weird and feels strange, um, it's really good to have someone that can help you hear things. And so that was incredibly beneficial uh, for me. And also one thing that I felt was difficult um, because I felt that sometimes my musical ideas weren't really being translated in a way that would come across on an audio recording. So I found that some things had to be exaggerated in a way just to really, really get point across. Um, so that was difficult. But when it comes to performing versus live performance, orchestra, solo, um, I'm not the kind of person who I go into a studio and I think, well, I have X amount of hours, I can just kind of do as many takes and things as I want. I like it to feel as natural as possible. You can clean up some things, perhaps, if you know, here and there. But I really want my performances that people hear to sound like me in a performance. And I think there are just certain things. There's a certain energy that you have in a performance that you don't have if you're just kind of relaxed and, you know, doing take after take after take in a recording studio. So I'm more interested in in performing in the studio, performing for the people on the other side of the booth. They are my audience for that moment and I'm playing to them and I'm trying to convey all of my ideas and I try to play in a way that really reflects um, an authentic live performance. So beyond those artistic things that you laid out, what do you think uh, classical, Western classical recording artists need to understand about the recording process or the recording industry overall. The, the biggest thing that I see is people complaining about uh, the fact that they don't make any money through streaming and, and, and those sorts of things. Are, are there other big items that you would uh, encourage uh, aspiring recording, classical recording artists to understand before they step into that booth? Yeah, it's a huge undertaking. It really, really is. And um, again, because you said beautifully, there is an issue with streaming. Like the numbers just don't make sense. Math don't There's math. a fabulous video with Snoop Dogg that's going around where he's talking about um, the streaming numbers and just like saying like this stream equals this. It's just the numbers make no sense. And so that is really, really tough. It's very expensive. I've been very fortunate um, that I've had some funding for projects. Um, my very first one, I had support from so many people uh, through crowd uh, sourcing, through a fund and campaign. And then um, through my most recent one, I was part of WQXR's Artist Propulsion Lab. Uh, the first uh, year that that happened in 2021. And so the support of WQXR also helped make possible twofold. Um, so it's a huge, it's a huge, huge undertaking. And I, I, I like to tell people to really think about the why you want to record, because it's not, it can't be because you want to like make a lot of money out of it. That's just not the way the industry is structured anymore. So you really have to think, is it, what is it that you have to say? How is it that you want to say it? And then try to do that. But then the other thing is, aside from artistic, what I'm really 
um, I'm not ashamed to do is to ask for help in areas of the field that I know nothing about. Hmm. So I surround myself with people who are not performers. I have friends who who have worked in the record industry for record labels. I have friends who have worked um, as publicists. I've had I have friends who have worked in programming, you know, in artistic programming and things like that. So I have a whole circle of people around me who help me talk through things, advise me, um, give me not only their friendship, but their time um, and resources. And I think that is really, really important because as performers, we don't learn about this stuff. We simply learn about music how to perform it, to execute it. And that's, I mean, in a way, it may be to think about it, but that's kind of the extent of it. So for other things, it's really important that musicians seek out information, Mm -hmm. information from people who do other things because it will make making a recording um, a lot, lot easier, I think. And in addition to seeking uh, advice and perspective from other people. Um, I appreciated reading on uh, one of the websites that profiles you that the converse is true as well, especially since 2020, when a lot of organizations are thinking about diversity and equity in in uh, in, in different ways. We we all, to some degree, have <laughs> experienced the whole panel discussion circuit, so 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 to speak. Um, how how what what have your engagements? with that part of the arts look like when people ask you to come in to speak on those topics? Yeah, in in 2020, so much changed for the world and for us as a nation, people. Um, And it was tough. It was really, really difficult. And I was asked a lot to come and to speak on various issues of race and inclusion in classical music. And very early on, I really appreciated that people wanted just to hear like my voice and to hear what it was that I had to say in that moment and that they could hopefully learn mm-hmm. from, from, from my experience. But there, the flip side of that is that it also became increasingly difficult for me to to have those kinds of conversations because um, it's almost like one is being asked to relive traumatic experiences. Yep. And I, I just had to tell myself, I don't, and ask myself some tough questions and say, I love representing beautiful Black people, musicians, artists. I'm all about that. Um, I love classical music and in this complicated world that I live in. But what is it that I'm comfortable doing and what is it that I'm uncomfortable doing? Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in speaking to people who just want to have me talk so that they can feel better about themselves and then to say that they've done the work. That does not interest me. It's it's very time consuming um, and it's also very emotionally draining to mm-hmm. constantly have to relive the trauma of Blacks in this country and as, as a Black man myself. So I kind of had to take a step back and say, I will do what I can to, to support initiatives and to have conversations when I can. And I think that when I think it's going to be done in a very thoughtful and meaningful way, but I'm not just going to talk to people and talk at people so that they can say that they've done the work because I don't think that that's doing the work. That's mm-hmm. not doing the work. And so, and that's not what I want to be associated with. And so, uh, after 2020 and 2021 and 2022, I really started to think about ways in which I can make more of an impact to offer myself to orchestras, to communities, um, to 
communities of color throughout this country, which led me to um, my new uh, commissioning project in which I'm commissioning new works by diverse composers um, from all across the spectrum um, and writing music for communities um, and going into communities, mentoring young people, all the things that are important to me, contemporary music, commissioning new works, mentorship, um, and also performance. And doing that and partnering with orchestras uh, to do what I think they were kind of after when we were having these conversations, but now it's more on my terms because mm -hmm. it's a way that I feel is, you know, it's holistic in a way. And it's something that I've created and it's something that allows me to share my, my life, my experiences and my passion with communities in a much more meaningful way than just having a simple conversation that may or may not be recorded and things may or may not change afterwards. Yep. Yep. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. famously asked that question, where do we go from here? But what I have found most useful for me is to frame it. Where do I go from here? How can I uniquely impact what I want to impact? And it sounds like that you're doing just that in your own unique way. I'm trying. I'm trying. And, you know, I have to say, I have to say that not only, um, you know, does this project represent so much about me and as an artist and what I want to do and the impact that I want to make in the world, but the work that I do with Imani Wins is so powerful and has been it is probably one of the biggest inspirations in my life. And I say that because they were doing that kind of work years and years before anyone was having these conversations, at least 20 years before anyone was having these conversations. There was this little woodwind quintet from New York City that said, we want to show what is possible on these instruments. We want to represent our people and we want the music that we play to represent not only one people, but all people and all people that we play for. And we want it to be an experience uh, that is an inclusive experience. So I have to say that they have and continued um, to serve as an inspiration for me and the work that I do not only with the group, but away from the group. Absolutely. I mean, uh, again, so circling back to what we talked about earlier, the first bassoonist I ever saw was a black woman with locks. You know, that is very significant. And that's been very significant for, for so many people. How can folks uh, learn more about you, uh, check out this album and uh, keep up with all of your other activities? Uh, everyone can visit brandonpatrickgeorge.com to find out uh, more about where I'll be and other projects. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram um, and regarding the album, speaking of all the conversation that we had about the music industry and recording, uh, it will be available on streaming platforms, but if you really want to support artists, you should buy music uh, because that, that is a way that you really, really can support artists and all the work that they do and all the people who are involved in making those projects possible. So people can visit uh, brandonpatrickgeorge.bandcamp.com if they want to actually purchase twofold. Beautiful. Well, I wanted to close by circling all the way back around to the story that you told about not being able to make the sound out of that flute. I'm sure you've had the opportunity to uh, teach, advise, mentor many up and coming flute players. What do you do about that youngster who can't quite make a sound on, on that head joint? Ooh. For starters, I try to be very, very patient because I thought it was, I look back and I think it was completely crazy that I was rejected from the band in fourth grade because I couldn't <laughs> make a sound in five minutes. You know, I'm practicing this thing every day, you know, 20 some years later, trying to get better than I was the day before, trying to do it, trying to do it day in and day out. It's, it's a never ending journey. So I try to be patient with, with young people and let them find 
their own way. I think that's also a part of how I work with young people. I'm not one to tell people what to do. Um, I ask a lot of questions and ask them what they're needing because I think if you can ask them what they, what they need and you can ask them what they're hearing and get them to articulate it, then it just might be a little easier for them to play it. So uh, I really look at my role as not as not a teacher teacher in this sort of dogmatic and telling you what to do way, but just like, hey, what are you hearing? What do you need? And helping someone become their own best teacher because that's what my teachers did for me. That one's called Zinfandale, a piece of music by Rena Esmail. Rena, I've said this on Twitter before, I'm going to repeat myself. I think Rena is my favorite living composer. Really just incredible music uh, from such a creative mind and performed so brilliantly there by Brandon Patrick George. Hope y'all will go check out Twofold. You can uh, find more information about it uh, on his website. And look, like he said, let's support the artists. I mean, it's it's good to stream and to, you know, check things out on YouTube, but let's let's uh, put some support behind this album. Actually purchase this album so that we can make sure work like this uh, continues for a generation and more to come. All right. Well, uh, we're here uh, at the weekly Triloquy. I'm, I'm not going to um, you know, do too much this week, but just a couple of things I wanted to highlight. First and foremost, I'm seeing a lot of folks uh, talking about Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis and the uh, letter of support, uh, character letter that they wrote for their uh, previous co-host, uh, who is uh, going to be serving 30 years to life in jail for rape. Um, they're facing a lot of backlash for that proximity for what they've done. And, uh, while I can talk about that, the way that I have been thinking about connecting that to the arts is what proximity, uh, to the status quo really means for people or what it can mean to people being close, being associated with something makes you a part of that thing. So if your associations, uh, artistically speaking, and I'm, I'm talking, let me just shoot straight here. I'm talking to the uh, orchestral musicians. If your proximity to white supremacist programming, white dominant European dominant programming is just a part of what you're doing day to day, and there's no pushback, there's no dialogue, there's no impact, there are no results, you're a part of that issue, just like Ashton and Mila are dealing with it right now, you know, as we can, as we continue to move forward, you're going to have to deal with it as well, because people are more and more people are challenging, more and more people are pushing. What side of history do you want to be on? I'm going to, I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to, you know, as, as one of my great friends says, if the bullet hits you, it was meant for you. Okay. So let me move on. Um, I've been, uh, I wanted to continue on one of the things that I was talking about last week at the end, you know, me going to this Buddhist conference and, you know, dealing with my ego and, and, um, and, and all of those things. So I've been on a journey. <laughs> I'm, I've really been thinking about this a lot. And what I've come to is that there's something in me that prevents me from really appreciating, even liking authority. You know, the reality is, I don't like what authority is capable of the more I think about it, because I've, I, I tap into, you know, my Buddha nature, as we say, and just see individuals. But these systems, you know, and what we see as the result of these systems is really the issue. Um, and I've, I've had to bring this uh, to uh, some recent news uh, from down in Alabama. So I'll, ha I'll have the article linked in the, in the description. But long story short, the police use tasers against a band director at a school performance in front 
of students. Now, the expectation is for us to not jump to conclusions. Those were the words uh, of the superintendent who's waiting to get all of the materials, everything that happened uh, before they make any sort of judgment. But at the end of the day, I know what band directors have done for me and my life. And I know what police officers have done me and to me during my life. Um, the, the, the story is ridiculous. I don't see how there can be um, another side of the story when you're talking about an unarmed person um, being assaulted by the police in front of students. I, I think the story was um, they were shutting down the stadium after a football game. The students had a minute or two left uh, on the song, whatever piece of music uh, that they were playing in the stands. Both schools said it was cool, but the police are trying to assert their authority and and scoot everybody out. Not now, but right now. And, you know, when the band director resisted, you know, he was tased. And so, you know, all, all of that is going on. I'm sending positive energy. His name is Johnny Mims. Uh, sending positive energy to Johnny um, and to the community, especially the students who had to sit there and watch that. And you know what? I'm sending encouragement to those of you who consider yourself good policemen. I've been meeting a lot lately um, and we need your help. Help us help you. Okay. Advocate for proper investigation of violence against citizens. Don't just go along like so many of these musicians do. Okay. Be that fish that's swimming upstream or whatever, and really call this stuff out. Find a way to report corruption within your ranks that's actually effective. See us as equal when you're on the beat or when you're pulling somebody over. Regard us as your colleague in humanity and not your subordinate, okay? Now, I know that this is coming from someone who just innately has a problem with authority, as I said earlier, but I don't think it's unfair to ask for police officers to see us as peers and not people who you can just tase in front of children because we aren't doing exactly what you want. I'm dealing with my problem of authority by applying that to myself conversely, taking myself outside of that stratified perspective. I'm applying the compassion that I have for my peers to those in so-called authority, okay? It's easy to be frustrated with your idea of someone or even your idea of their intent, but for me, I think it's more difficult to be upset with the human being that's doing their best. Just like I'm a human being doing my best, these people are as well. Now, if a person isn't doing their best, like these police officers who needed to assert their authority for no good reason and tase the man, that's their negative karma and that's for them to deal with. I know that the community is surrounding Johnny Mims. He is going to uh, get so much benefit for uh, persevering through this challenge. And, you know, the people on the other side of that will have to deal with what they have to deal with down the road. Okay. Shout out to everyone uh, who came and said hello after my presentation at the Public Radio Program Directors Conference. Um, really enjoyed working there with Sherry and Oliver and Tamberly. Uh, shout out to y'all. And you know what? Shout out to those of you who didn't feel compelled to do your best <laughs> and say hello. You know who you are. Be safe, everybody. Really appreciate it all again and uh, talk to you next week.